evening. Um, may I welcome you all to the Department of Social Policy Centennial Lecture. I'm David Pearshow from the Department. The subject of the lecture is fault lines and silver linings in the European social model. With an S in brackets. Uh, our lecturer uh, is LSE Centennial Professor in the Department, Professor Anton Emery. First, I want to thank the LSE Centennial Funds and the donors to it for endowing the Centennial Professorship. Secondly, I want to thank Anton for accepting the chair. Third, I would like to thank FIFA and the Brazilian authorities for arranging that the World Cup doesn't start in <laughs> I might add that fixing this has been a serious dent in the head of the discretionary fund. Uh, Anton will lecture, then we'll have comments from two experts on European social policy, Baltraj Schelke and David Soskis, who is uh, modestly sitting uh, there. Uh, we'll move there so we can see the slides too. Uh, they're both most welcome. Then we'll have a time for questions and answers. Then we can adjourn to the staff dining room. All of you are, in, of you are invited for refreshments. <coughs> Anton's exceptionally well-qualified to lecture on the European social model. He trained as both economist and political scientist. He obtained a doctorate from Oxford in 1993. He directed the principal think tank in the Netherlands for nearly a decade. He's held chairs in Erasmus University Rotterdam and Antwerp. He's been Dean of Social Sciences and Vice-Rector of the Free University Amsterdam. Among his many writings, his latest book, Changing Welfare States, available outside and in the staff dining room later, uh, is a book which I commend to you, a, a book of great scholarship and also of great optimism and enthusiasm. Tonight's lecture couldn't be more timely. The European elections cast doubt over the future of the European Union. The clear majority decided not to vote at all. Last night, Gordon Brown was at LSE defending the United Kingdom against Scottish nationalism or parochialism. Uh, he recounted asking someone whether they had not voted because of ignorance or apathy, to which he got the reply, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> there are certainly doubts about the future. We are often told that we're at, cross, at a crossroads. I think for the next few years, in Britain at least, we genuinely are. Perhaps it's worth recalling the end of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. To tell us whether we are on a fault line awaiting an earthquake or whether there is to be a silver lining, may we, wel may we welcome Anton Hemmerich. Thank you very much for those uh, kind uh, words, uh, David. Um, as you can see, I, I changed the title slightly. Um, and, and that has significance, as you will probably hear um, in the next couple of, couple of minutes. The Great Recession has swiftly and markedly exacerbated the risk of a clash, both political and economic, 
between a nation-based welfare state and the European Union. On the one hand, domestically, the member states are politically bound by widely cherished national social contracts, which have served in the past essential economic stabilization and social cohesion functions, and whose promises are difficult to manage on, especially in economically hard times. On the other hand, the supranation at the supranational level, the reinforced rule-based macroeconomic governance structure of the EU, privileging budget consolidation and low inflation, commits the member states to a long-term project of negative market integration under permanent fiscal austerity, which in a downturn implies intrusive retrenchment on their social protection systems. This is especially pertinent for the so-called program countries, i.e. Greece, Ireland, and Portugal, Portugal, and to a lesser extent Spain, which under the surveillance of the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, have been forced to drastically cut minimum wages, pensions, education, health and old age care expenditures, and deregulate their labor markets and wage bargaining structures. When and where stagnation prevails, mass unemployment, rising poverty and inequality fuel relative deprivation spirals among voters, which in turn form the breeding grounds for anti-EU and anti-establishment populism at both the right and the left poles of the ideological spectrum. Between rising Euroscepticism and the EU's inquisitive imposition of fiscal austerity, a political institutional vacuum has emerged at the heart of the European integration project, pitting the northern core economies against the embattled southern periphery and partly also against central and eastern latecomers, who are now being accused of undercutting collective bargaining standards and promoting welfare tourism. Within national political arenas, the vacuum generates increasing strains between mainstream pro-EU parties on the one hand and Eurosceptic populist movements on the other, forcing for less Europe, exit from the Euro, and an end to immigration. This political vacuum, brought home with a vengeance indeed by the results of the 2014 elections to the European Parliament, considerably frustrates the imperative to reconstruct the incomplete architecture of the economic and monetary union. One that is able to foster economic stability, but also one that does justice to the EU's self-acclaimed ambition to sustain a highly competitive social market economy, a free market tempered by generous welfare state provision, <coughs> consensus-building politics, and cooperative industrial relations as articulated in Article 3 of the Lisbon, Lisbon Treaty of 2009. By 2014, as the ex existential crisis of the euro has somewhat abated, the new policy imperative for the member states and the EU more generally is to manage the social aftershocks of the global financial and economic crisis in the face of sluggish growth. On average, 12% of the Eurozone workforce is jobless, 
A quarter of the economically active young Europeans are unemployed, and the equality and poverty levels are rising. Without a long-term strategic focus on improving human capital and capabilities, expanding employment opportunities and easing labor market and life course transitions for individuals and families, the EU risks becoming a trap in a permanent depression. The crisis is by no means over. Will the national welfare state and European integration, two of the most important legacies of post-war social and institutional engineering, prove resilient in the aftermath of the Great Depression? In my contribution today, I would like to, and now I'm shift from the text to uh, the PowerPoint, um, I would proceed in, in, in six uh, steps. First, I would, I would like to say something about the theoretical perspective uh, of uh, my, my latest book, Changing Welfare States. Then I want to talk about uh, the rise of new social risks, but also <coughs> social risks and the social investment uh, imperative. Then I associate a number of crisis shocks with the deep fault lines in the EMU construction. And then, on a more positive note, I want to sort of interpret the recent period as a period of transition, beginning uh, uh, with the, 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 the pledge by the European Central Bank, by Mario Draghi, to do whatever it takes uh, to, uh, to save the euro. But there are also, on the social policy side, a number of silver linings, far too few, but nevertheless, upon which we uh, can build. Then I want to have a little intermezzo on, on, on competing explanations, which is also the way I would like to trigger David Soskis from a variety of capitalism approach to, to, to bring some light uh, um, on, on, the, on the matter. And I will uh, uh, end with a more, more normative uh, conclusion um, on this idea of a currency union um, of active uh, 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 welfare states. Reasoning from an institutional perspective, so I wouldn't say where there's a will, there is a way, but it's the other way around. There's a, there's a way out, and, and then we need to construct a will to go with it. Um, Changing Welfare Stage, which was published last year, 2013, is more or less a sequel of, of something that I did together with just uh, Espen Anderson, Duncan Gelly, and John Miles. We were, in 2001, we were invited by the European Commission, or rather by the Belgian presidency, to write a, a sort of utopia uh, uh, on, on a new architecture for the 21st uh, century. And, you know, it wasn't exactly a utopia, but nevertheless, uh, we, we put this, this notion of social investment, uh, um, I think, on, on the agenda. And then, in, in, in the, the following decade, I spent a lot of time on, on trying to sort of trace reforms <coughs> and look at some numbers to see if there is progress or regress in this uh, uh, social investment direction. And I also, also asked myself the question, to what extent the EU has anything to do with it, positive uh, uh, or negative? I think the basic conclusion is, and we all know this, is that welfare reform, you know, these are established rights, are difficult. But it happens, and it happens in a, to a major uh, degree. So then uh, what I try to answer in the book is why and how and to what uh, uh, effect. The background uh, assumption, as, as was said by David just now, I'm trained as an economist, but I shifted from economics uh, to politics when I was admitted to Oxford University to do a, a PhD. 
um, and, and I think this, is, this goes with it, is that, that my understanding of how the economy works is that the welfare state is what really makes capitalism compatible with, uh, with uh, democracy. And I think this has been the understanding of, 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 of many uh, of us for a very long time. But more recently, people like who, who also part of, part of my teachers, like Wolfgang Streeck and, and, and Fritz Scharf, they are now saying that perhaps you know in the long run um, uh, uh, there are irreconcilable contradictions within democratic uh, capitalism or welfare uh, capitalism. But I stick to the old Polanian um, belief uh, uh, here. In my book, I'm trained as sort of, you know, this, this, this institutionalist, uh, I, I tend to call it now open institutionalism because there's a lot of determinism uh, in, in, in institutional uh, thinking. What I take from institutionalism is very much the idea that we live in a world of path-dependent solutions. You know, we cannot change overnight the constitution of, uh, of the EU. And, and that welfare states are a particular uh, um, uh, institutionally dense environments with a lot of staying power and clientels that oppose reforms um, and, and, and what have you. But that basically what institutionalists are saying is that history matters. But history, of course, does not include transformative change. And I think there are two mechanisms of change uh, that are relevant for, for us today. There's a mechanism of, of what has been called thrift by, by, by some American uh, scholars, and it's really the sort of incipient, <coughs> slow erosion of rules with no deliberate attempt, attempt at correction in the face of massive macro, social, and, and economic change. And that, you know, at some point, some policy advisor asked the prime minister, you know, what are we going to do with this thing? And he said, oh, no, it's all broke. We cannot do really nothing about it. And then it's the end of that. That's the drift. Um, a more proactive uh, response uh, uh, I call recalibration, and it's the use of existing rules for new purposes, so strategic redeployment with, a, 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 with policy learning feedback uh, uh, to it. Um, uh, I mean, I tend to think that, that, that what, what informs policymakers is often also policy paradigms, and they're, again, they're difficult uh, to change, but there are feedback effects from empirical reality, from scholarships here at the LSC, upon which you know, policymakers may change uh, uh, their mind. Now, if we, we, we study uh, uh, Europe, and that's why I changed the, the title uh, from European Social Models between Brett Records to European Social Market Economy. One reason is that the European Social Market Economy as an ambition is in the uh, uh, treaty, but on the other hand, you know, coming from a comparative perspective, you know, once countries commit themselves to the single market, or you know, uh, worse or, or deeper, to a monetary union that is very that's almost impossible to dis disentangle, then doing comparative uh, research without acknowledging the systematic effects of EMU it's pretty hard uh, 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 to do. So, so if you look at EU rulemaking from a welfare state perspective, then the question is, does it preserve or accommodate differences in welfare uh, states, or does it burden and in the end corrode, I mean, as a sort of drift uh, uh, dynamic, these now semi-sovereign welfare states, and then you know, what are the economic, but also what are the political consequences in terms of 
you know, voting, uh, as we have seen in, in the recent uh, elections. So the thing is to open up our, our analytical uh, lenses for changes at two levels uh, of, of policy making. In the social policy uh, uh, studies, there's a lot of debate on sort of old risk and new risk. And old risk are, are, are uh, old age, uh, unemployment, new risks are sort of reconciling work and family life. And given sort of the onslaught of the Great Recession, I mean, that dichotomy really has, has broken down. But there's something to what has been called new social risks that I think are relevant. And, and maybe the best way to summarize this is to put the two together by saying that the social risk of the life course in the labor market have fundamentally become less productive, predictable, and thereby less insurable in a strict actuarial sense. And this, this has great importance because our unemployment benefit system, and to some extent also our, our pension system, are based on actuarial cal calculations of chances, to, to become unemployed, but also if the economy picks up, to go back uh, uh, to the same work environment as you know people may have worked uh, uh, before. Now, if this is true, then welfare states in advanced economies are more than ever pressured to raise the quantity and quality of enabling capacitating social services, not easily provided by the market, to equip and assist people to surmount these increasingly uncertain hazards of the labor market and the life course they face. Alongside, I mean, they remain important uh, uh, safety net uh, buffers. And perhaps a good way to sort of, you know, to, to, to picture this change uh, uh, is that after the Great Depression and the Second World War, what was clearly on the minds of policymakers, however they wanted to innovate the institutional environment, is a search for stability after the chaos of the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. And here the innovation of both Keynes and Beveridge was really helpful because Keynes came up with the idea of economic stabilization over the business cycle, and Beveridge came up with the idea of compulsory social insurance, which then served that buffer function over the life course. And this was also the time when European market integration sort of picked up, also to consolidate an open uh, uh, economy um, in, in, in the post-war period. Now, there's a flip side to stability. Uh, if you think with every crisis that you need more stability, then at some point the system becomes really rigid. And so the, the Great Depression, which was a financial crisis, and the stability imperative was very important, the great stagnation of the 1970s and 1980s was a real economy crisis, and you know, supply had to uh, uh, had a big impact there. And also, the way we organized our welfare system with increasingly rigid labor markets, with <coughs> indexation uh, systems, and what have you. And this is where the sort of this challenge of flexibility uh, uh, came in. And this is also when there was a change in economic thinking from Keynes to stable money, sound budgets, and market liberalization, which were then taken up uh, uh, um, as at the core of the of the of the of the single market and and, and later EMU. I come back to that. Um, and this happened also at a time when the 
when the last quarter of the baby boom generation entered the labor market. So we had huge uh, youth unemployment uh, problems. And in many countries, uh, my country, Germany, uh, uh, they responded by sort of allowing uh, uh, for early retirement in, or in order to make way for youngsters. Now, this wasn't a success because, you know, early retirement still had to be paid for. And, you know, as a consequence, this made labor extremely expensive, which made employers very reluctant to, uh, to take on uh, 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 youngsters. So now we have the Great Recession. Uh, and again, it sort of sparked off as a financial uh, crisis. But some of the, the things that have been implemented in the 1980s and 1990s haven't come uh, full circle. So my sort of intuition is still there, there is a demand and supply uh, problem. Although welfare states have been considerably uh, uh, um, uh, reformed, they are challenged for new adaptive uh, capacity in the face of aging, uh, um, and also uh, the, the, the economic fertility that is still there in the wake of, uh, of the crisis. So it's, 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 it's neither a flexibility imperative nor a stability imperative, but rather the imperative of, uh, of, uh, of resilience. And in this resilience perspective, that's where the social investment perspective comes in. Um, and, and I have a very simple definition. Social investment policies are policies that aim at preparing individuals, families, and societies to respond to new social risks uh, of the internationalized competitive knowledge economy by investing in human capital and capabilities from early childhood through old age, such as education, training, active inclusion, childhood rather than simply policies that repair damages after moments of economic or personal crisis. Now, for conceptualization, I now kind of sort of change that um, uh, into three important dimensions. And these are stock, flows, and buffers. So there is this imperative, which you read everywhere uh, uh, today, uh, of raising the quality of human capital stock over the life course from the young to the old, in order to gain cumulative returns. So the more you invest in youngsters, the more easy it is for them later in life to learn new things. So you really have to start uh, uh, early. Now with the massive entry of women onto the labor market, we, you also need to organize the flow of labor market transitions, of combining care uh, with, with career, over these new gendered uh, life course uh, uh, dynamics. So flow is not the same as labor market uh, deregulation. And then there is a need, given the new social risk, which are difficult to ensure in a traditional uh, sense, to have strong minimum income universal safety nets as social income protection buffers, but also for reasons of economic uh, stabilization. And we've seen this in the crisis that the countries that still have these, these uh, stabilization buffers did uh, so much better. And countries that did better are also the ones who had universal safety nets rather than employment-based insurance uh, uh, buffers. Now, the devil is in the details between stock flow um, and, and buffers. And to give you an example, I was once asked by the Belgian uh, 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 government to look into uh, a, a childcare scheme that they developed, and um, 
they, they, essentially the, the Minister of, uh, of Labour in Flanders, I mean, Flanders is different than uh, Wallonia, copied on a relatively meagre uh, basis, nevertheless, uh, the Swedish uh, uh, system. And we made a comparison between Sweden and Flanders in, in the way they reached uh, uh, working uh, uh, women. And it, 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 it turned out that, that in the Swedish case, the, the, the lower echelons of the labor markets were in, in fact uh, covered. I mean, they, they, they profited from the childcare subsidies, and this was not the case uh, in, uh, in, in Flanders. And the natural inclination is to say, well, you know, that's because it's a less generous scheme. But when we looked a little bit deeper, it turned out that the Flemish labor market was far more hostile to, uh, to women. So in effect, even middle class women who got the subsidies really had to fight their way into their jobs. So, so if you spend a lot on childcare, but you don't change the regulation and the flow uh, of the labor market, then, uh, then extra childcare spending could be very expensive uh, 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 policy. So, so you really need to take into account these institutional uh, uh, complementarities, and the devil is, of course, in, in the details. Back to the, to the crisis. What we've seen, I think, is, is are four crisis aftershocks. There was a financial crisis, there was a credit crunch turned into a real economy crisis, and then 2008, we've seen this sort of fire brigade Keynesianism to basically save the banks uh, and, and jobs. And I think by this move, uh, um, policymakers, you know, uh, uh, prevented uh, uh, another great uh, recession. So, that, and in a way, this was very successful. Also, very surprising because all the policymakers that were in, in power uh, were not trained as as Keynesians. Uh, so, that's very interesting to see how aggressive this policy uh, was. But it didn't last because, um, you know, around 2009. The banking crisis in Spain, uh, Ireland, uh, and, 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 uh, and Greece turned to a, into a sovereign debt crisis. So this was the time when policymakers thought, hey, damn, you know, we really need to go back to the 1980s to, 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 to deregulate, privatize, and, and, and to really get the state out of the, um, the, the economy, um, sort of trying to save or salvage the, the policy regime ex ante. And this sort of spilled over into the euro crisis. And then, at a very late stage, uh, in 2012, there was a, a recognition by uh, the European Central, Central Bank, luckily, that macroeconomic stabilization is, is far more than targeting uh, low inflation and, and, and looking after deficits. So, so, so the ECB turned into a letter of last resort. It's not allowed to do so in the treaty. So it's called, uh, um, um, what is it? Monetary. Outright monetary transactions. Yeah. Um, and given the fact that the crisis was not resolved, and again, you know, if you go back to the 1970s, the, the oil crisis were not resolved uh, in, 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 in over a decade. So, 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 you know, that shouldn't surprise us. But, but lo and behold, this really turned into a national and institutional uh, legitimate crisis uh, because there were deepening uh, imbalances in the face of low growth, little uh, light at the end uh, of, of the tunnel, and that provokes these perverse narratives of the lazy Greeks and the industrious uh, uh, 
Germans, and I think the European elections are an important marker at the moment. So the three fold lines, um, uh, and, and they, 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 they belong together um, in a way, is first of all the myopic design of EMU, deliberately without a fiscal uh, 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 backstop. And that sort of forces um, on the program countries internal devaluation uh, strategies. And it's, it's sort of sad to see that that the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact were more taken more seriously in the bad economic times recently than the good years when you know, we as a collective let in Greece and, 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 and Italy and we also <coughs> allowed uh, France and Germany uh, to, uh, to trespass uh, uh, the rules uh, 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 of the Stability and Growth Pact. Now, the way EMI was designed institutionally, you should, can imagine you put a currency together, but you allow it to be steered, except for the ECB, by individual countries. And at a time when the EU is expanding from you know, 6 to 18 later EMU member states and, and to 28 single market uh, 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 members, that it becomes, with this kind of institutional minimalism, becomes very difficult to, to really have an effective response uh, to, uh, to the crisis. And as a result, the strong economies, and particularly Germany, then take over the agenda-setting uh, uh, role from, from the Commission in, in the wake of, uh, of the crisis. And this institutional minimalism, in a way, also allows national policymakers, or rather national politicians, to, to tell their electorates, you know, we're really sovereign in the welfare state field. We're, you know, we're doing economics in the context of the EU, but of course, you know, economics is welfare uh, 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 writ large. So, um, um, in this sort of muddling through procrastination, not helping Greece, helping Greece under tough rules, etc., etc., um, this, this fuels economic uh, nationalism, which further narrows the scope for supranational crisis management. That does justice to the systemic interdependency of EMU on the one hand, and on the other hand, this sort of self-acclaimed idea of the European uh, uh, social market uh, economy. Now, what I'd like to highlight in particular is how much policy is based on ideas, it's based on, on, on paradigms, and, and, and for very good reasons. I mean, we need to understand that EMU was based on an understanding of the stagflation crisis. Now we have a different crisis, but that's how it became institutionalized. So EMU is based on a very axiomatic economic uh, theory that is gender, family, skill, and age blind, which today is becoming very important. Behind that theory is this idea that there is a trade-off between equity and efficiency, and the more countries try to sort of meet equity uh, criteria, the less efficient uh, uh, they are. So, you know, expanding the welfare state is not a good, a wise thing uh, to do. Inherent in that is the primacy of market uh, allocation, and the state should be left out, maybe do some regulation. And this is particularly true for services. I mean, this is general understanding that as a consequence uh, that, that in, in, in industry you can work with robots, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of productivity increases, 
But in services, it's very difficult uh, to have a string quartet play faster or to change bets uh, by robots. Maybe you can do that, but, but, but still. So services always lag behind uh, 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 the private industry productivity uh, uh, trends. Now, if services are being paid at the same level as in private industry, then this burdens competitiveness. Now, there's a there, there are, there's number of steps uh, in, in this, this reasoning that, uh, that, 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 that do not give a correct picture. Um, because what you really would like to measure, let's say, is how service-intensive good education adds to private sector competitiveness. We compare, you know, uh, passes uh, in, 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 in exams uh, and, and, and numbers of beds being occupied in beds. I mean, those are the kind of indicators that we use for productivity and services, and they're quite poor. But nevertheless, this understanding very much dominates the European uh, policy uh, regime. And then the overriding policy problem, as we saw it in the 90s, and some people still see it that way, is that there is a problem of cost containment that has to do with pensions. So the EU does a, a numerous study, studies on, on pension liabilities. They never do a study on early school leaving, which in a way, in the long run, um, you know, has huge implications also for, for, for pensions. But the overriding policy problem is cost containing, containment. So what the policy advice then is, is to engineer risk shift from the private, uh, from the public to the private sector. We, as if the aging problem then goes away. You know, let, let's leave that aside. And EMU is designed in a way to, to without a fiscal backstop, to discipline countries into market liberalization and keeping services at bay. I mean, that's a sort of intentional design uh, here. And people often say, you know, this is, a, this is a mistake to not have a fiscal backstop. And we had a debate about it in the 1980s. But this was, you know, on purpose, because this is the way to discipline uh, countries uh, to, to, to move towards much leaner welfare systems. And also in this perspective, institutions are often seen as market barriers that are easily misused by distributive uh, coalitions of rent seekers, weak uh, uh, trade unions, and the political discourse behind this is, is you know, there is no alternative, or the European model is dead, as Mario Draghi said it to the Financial Times uh, uh, two years ago. Now, these fault lines are also deeply embedded in economic strategies, and that's what makes it so hard to get rid of, even if you recognize, you know, that may have been a mistake. So for Germany and the northern economies to have trading partners that can no, can no longer devalue is great for export-led uh, growth. At the same time, for the southern periphery, low interest rates set the stage for growth and domestic expansion and easing, and this is very important, easing pressures on debt and deficits, i.e. easing press, pressures to reform encouraged also by huge capital flows from the northern banks uh, on the lookout for secure, secure investments. And as I said, the single market EMU intergovernmentalism allowed politicians to maintain the pre-crisis illusion of national welfare state sovereignty and shift easily 
to oppose crisis in that narrative of profligate and lazy Greeks and thrifty and industrious Germans. And here you can see the consequence uh, uh, of these uh, 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 three fault lines. At the upper row, you see unemployment uh, levels of the southern uh, periphery. So that is you know, Spain, Italy, Portugal. Um, and, and the lowest green bar is the, uh, the average unemployment rate in, in countries like Germany, Austria, Belgium, uh, and the Netherlands. And these are EMU members. And the, countries, the, 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 the lines in between are non-EMU members. So, so if the single market should encourage convergence, and EMU should encourage even more convergence, here you see that it's, you know, at this current stage, it's the opposite that is happening. And I could have you know, shown growth figures, I could have shown inequality figures, I mean, it's all the same picture. So there's something deeply wrong in the construction of EMU that needs to be uh, uh, corrected. Now there may be a few silver linings. Um, and I think we've entered, a, I hope, I think and hope we've entered uh, a period of transition beginning with uh, Mario Draghi's uh, pledge to do whatever it takes to save uh, the euro. I mean, that sort of calmed financial markets. And I think on the social policy side, there are sort of three silver linings. One is this sort of wave of proactive welfare reform compatible with the currency union, as I have uh, laid out uh, in, in my uh, book. The other uh, is the 2013 social investment package launched by, uh, by the European uh, uh, Commission. I'll say a few more words uh, on that. And also, lo and behold, there's a sort of rekindling of the debate uh, started by Jacques Delors in the 1980s of adding a social dimension to EMU also to take account of the demand side uh, uh, of the current uh, uh, predicament. Let's go through the sort of proactive uh, uh, welfare reform uh, 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 process that, that sort of that I summarize in my book, and there's a whole list here. I won't go through it uh, 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 in, in, in total, but what is really interesting is that if you trace reforms in the majority of, of EU member states, this is more or less what you see happening also in a sort of sequence of, uh, uh, of changes. So there's wage moderation, there's a selective sobering up of the welfare state, but no dismantling, a stronger incentive on, uh, on activation, uh, and more spending on active labor market policy. There are attempts, but not all that successful, at uh, what you can call labor market desegmentation that does justice to these changes, uh, changes in the life course. Interestingly, there's now more income protection uh, 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 than in the 1980s, more universalism. I think the only two countries that do not have a minimum uh, uh, income are Greece and, uh, and, and, and Italy. Multi-pillar pension reform, the most important thing with pension reform is that life expectancy is, is, is factored in uh, today. Not successfully so, but still. And then a, a huge change in dual earner family support uh, and early childhood uh, development. Human capital has been rediscovered, it's been written about every day. Financial hybridization, interestingly, a shift by and large from social insurance financing, so the German uh, style, 
to more general uh, taxation with private contribution and with spend before the crisis with spending convergence uh, 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 upwards. And a lot of governance change because if you want to combine activation with benefits, you, you, you need, as it were, one shop uh, uh, counter to, which, which helps you with the benefits and, and also uh, helps in the capacitation of, uh, uh, of, of our clients and that requires a lot of positive coordination in, in public administration, which is difficult to, to do. So, so that's the general trend. Now, you can show, I mean, I'm able to show uh, that these policies together have a long-term effect. And if you look at employment population ratios, I mean, there was a huge, a huge financial crisis in Sweden uh, in, the, in the late 1980s. But what you, what you see is that, lo and behold, uh, European economies are converging on a higher levels uh, on employment. Now, behind this is... Uh, you know the entry of women into the labor market, and uh, and uh, the blue line here is Spain. So it's a really uh, you know it's, uh, it's, 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 it's it's like a revolution in in, in 30 years uh, uh, time. Now behind this 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 rise in female employment is something very uh, important, and that is that today participation rates of women. Uh, uh, is positively correlated with fertility, whereas you know three decades ago and five decades ago this was even more skewed. There was a negative uh, correlation. There's a sad story behind this uh, because you know if you do a survey across Europe and ask young <coughs> young people how many children they would like to have, you know it's sort of you know, per couple is two point something. Uh, and you know that number is, is is nowhere reached, but there are places like Italy and Spain where fertility rates is 1.1 or or maybe 1.2, uh, uh, and that goes to show that young people cannot have their uh, cannot achieve or realize their family uh, aspirations because the labor market doesn't allow for that because they 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 only have children if they are able to secure their position uh, in, in, in the labor market. This is a very important sociological fact to be taken into account when we do economic uh, modeling. So the other big change is the higher employment rate of, uh, of older uh, workers. And of course, you know, this has to do uh, with uh, uh, the pension reforms that are, have been implemented since the 1980s. Um, but, but as you can see here, uh, the Swedish uh, uh, older workers, I mean, they uh, are, are way up there. Uh, uh, and that has to do, uh, you know, there's a positive correlation with spending on lifelong learning and the employment rate, and also the exit rate. So in a way, there's a double dividend at work with, with lifelong uh, 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 learning. And as I said, you know, the European Commission did marvelous studies on pension, but never looked at, uh, at early school leaving and education system. And if you think about, you know, pensions in, in the long run, um, just as Ben Anderson used to say to Frank van der Broeke, where we worked uh, on the book Why We Need a Welfare State, and Frank was Minister of Pensions, he said, you know, Frank, if you want to save pensions, invest in children. And by that time, Frank thought, where is this coming from? From another planet? But now, I mean, uh, uh, we learned a lesson. 
this is again this is before the crisis so in, in terms of inequality the, the, the picture is quite sort of it's on the one hand mixed although you know the Scandinavian countries there are massive rises on in, in, in inequality and you know there, there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done because there's a shift to the right on the one hand but there's also uh, you know given the fact that you have a sort of mating so um, you know the the well-educated couple with the with the well-educated, and so poverty these days comes in couples, and usually it's couples that do not work. Uh, uh, uh. And then you know, there's a lot of talk again about labor market deregulation. You know, labor market protection has become less strict, but this cannot explain, you know, the massive increase in employment uh, uh, that we have seen before uh, the crisis. So, to come with uh, um, competing uh, um, explanation, so the question is, are these different welfare regimes, or different varieties of capitalism if you want, are they institutionally incompatible with EMU? Or have there been you know, many, many mistakes that are sort of up for correction? I tend to vouch for the latter but you know, we will have a debate uh, about that. So there's one hypothesis that you know, these different political economies, one based on export-led growth, Germany is the model, and another on demand-led uh, expansion, are incompatible uh, with the currency union. And this is what happened to Southern Europe. And now they're trapped in the worst of all possible worlds because they cannot reflate, they cannot use the currency. Uh, um, and are really forced to, re to retrench uh, uh, on, on very tough uh, conditions. So the other hypothesis is, you know, I've reviewed significant contingent convergence over time with, you know, massive hikes in employment uh, levels, so countries have become more alike, uh, 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 I would say. And, you know, there have been many anticipated consequences by such a systemic change that uh, uh, we have implemented with uh, EMU. So then the question is, can you disentangle this? Can you really correct this or not? I mean, that is uh, something that we uh, need to ponder uh, on. So if we go back to the old welfare regime literature of Juste Asping Anderson, my, my claim is there's been significant convergence. So social investment standard test uh, of the crisis. In, 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 in the continental welfare states, too. A gradual endorsement of social investment, but again, depressed demand <coughs> in services because of the BOMO cost uh, fear. Also, in the UK and Ireland, there's a genuine shift towards social investment, but not enough to fight inequality, also because I think at the time, inequality was not considered a really serious political uh, uh, problem the way it's, it, it is now. What is interesting is that the UK and Ireland, and also my country, the Netherlands, they were pro-social investment, spending on families and, and, and fighting poverty in the good times, but there were really social investment retrenchers in the, in the hard uh, uh, times. And this goes to show, I think, something in the structure of their economy, because they were really vulnerable uh, because of this financialization uh, uh, overhang. Uh, and a lot of private debt. Again, you know, following the macro regime of EMU, 
In Brussels never looked at private debt. I mean, the bad pupil was always the state, so you have to target deficits and, 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 and public debt and not private uh, uh, debt. Now, something interesting happened to the, and this is really an unintended consequences in the Mediterranean countries, because the low interest rates for them really triggered reform standstill. And you can clearly see this in Greece and Italy. I mean, all the, 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 the parties in power had no interest to reform the welfare state at all, and no interest whatsoever in uh, uh, social uh, investment. And now they've sort of woken up, woken up from a really bad uh, uh, dream. So this is, I think, is unanticipated. It's not a structural feature of these uh, economies that they cannot abide by a single currency. But if the single currency would allow or would discipline reform, also in good times, a shift from, from passive to active welfare state, we would have been in a different uh, position. And what, is, what I find, so there is this social investment package that is launched by the European uh, Commission, prepared by the DG Employment uh, uh, over 2012. Um, and what I find, I mean, it's a document of about 175 pages, and it's really worth reading, because it, it, in many instances, it's, 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 it's of a, a different uh, order than the traditional EMU regime. This is what I find interesting if you want to understand changes over time. Uh, uh, because here it's clearly said that without a magic growth driver, sustainable employment is the best guarantee for growth and social cohesion in aging societies. And they use a different uh, uh, conceptualization uh, than I. But, but it's all about stocks, flows, and buffer, and how they crowd in as opposed to crowding out private economic initiatives. And they use you know, the examples of the Netherlands, Germany, and the Scandinavian <coughs> countries to make this uh, a point. Um, and they, they, I mean, there's a whole list of things uh, where they show, also with good numbers, how there are positive some complementarities for families, but also for society at large. It's a very important uh, uh, message. Again, I won't go through the whole uh, list uh, here. But you know, social investment is a supply-side strategy. So that's not going to help uh, uh, now uh, because you know we're dealing with with a demand deflation uh, problem uh, in in euro. So so there are a number of proposals have been made to stabilize the euro, some more social than, than, than others. I've sort of, you know, counted uh, four. One is sort of the euro bonds uh, solution, which is a, 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 a debt neutralization uh, mechanism. Very easy to administer, but it, you know, it's been clearly vetoed by, by Germany. And it only addresses the demand side of, of the problem and not the sort of supply side resilience of, uh, of political economies or welfare uh, systems. A new idea that has come up is sort of, you know, to have an, a short-term European unemployment insurance uh, top-up. So for temporary relief, it addresses social imbalances, it addresses uh, um, uh, 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 unemployment, um, but again, it, it does not address long-term uh, resilience, and it is in a way 
inside of bias, because it's those who were, who uh, are, 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 and then fall, uh, lose a job who are being helped, which is, which is of course very good. <coughs> now there, there is an idea of uh, Hermann van Rompuy, and it's called the contractual approach. And, and again, this is, these are conditional uh, reforms. Uh, and the, the ones that I've seen are not generous uh, enough, are not really long-term in orientation. But you can think of uh, a social investment project bonds that, that can address uh, a system resilience. So let's say if a country like Spain really wants to reform its uh, uh, early childhood education system and its education uh, uh, policies, it, uh, currently, it doesn't have the funds to do so right now, but you can say, well, for, if you want to invest uh, in your, your, your training system, you pay less interest on, on, on loans uh, uh, via the ECB, or you pay no interest uh, at all. And the more radical uh, suggestion is to, to say, you know, given the fact that social investments they, they have a rate of return, and especially in aging societies. I mean, this is something that if you don't do it, in a way, the irony is that you get unemployment, now full employment sooner rather than later, but really of a really bad quality, and then you get into a stagflation uh, crisis again. So if countries want to shift towards social investments, then maybe they should be let off uh, the rules of the stability and growth pact. Now, this is a very heterodox uh, uh, idea. I'm coming to uh, 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 an end. And, and the point that I tried to raise in, in the book, but also uh, in, in, in more recent publications, is, is that you can have a currency union under rather strict macroeconomic conditions with active, generous, inclusive uh, welfare states. And I think the thing to recognize is that, you know, EMU or EU democracies are all welfare states. And today, Brazil and China aspire to become uh, welfare states. So there's nothing per se wrong with, uh, with the welfare uh, states. Um, my political science inclination is that, that without real social convergence, and now we have social divergence, economically, but also politically, EMU is unsustainable. And that's going to be a, a, a disaster. So in a way, there's an ex existential interest to redress <coughs> these social uh, symmetries. Again, I have no proof of that, but that's my, my, my hunch. Now, social investment, because of the positive macroeconomic effects that I've tried to show, and more elaborately in my book, must therefore be prioritized and anchored in EMU macroeconomic and budgetary uh, 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 governments. And we cannot have human, human capital to go to waste the way we let it happen in the 1980s and 1990s when the last uh, uh, quarter of the baby boom generation entered the labor market. So at that time, it was still uh, possible to be quite sloppy with uh, 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 wasteful with, uh, with human uh, 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 capital. Now, you cannot work on the supply side without sort of, you know, have a, an answer to the demand uh, uh, problem. So here, to achieve long-term symmetry, there needs to be collective action at the supranational uh, level, whether it's euro bonds or, or social investment project bonds uh, uh, or what have you. And it also means that, you know, 
if countries would agree to this, that there would be more um, concrete or strict monitoring on a number of you know, policy areas, whereas before we thought you know, childcare, you know, the EU has nothing to do with that. Uh, but I think that is important uh, uh, to sustain uh, some kind of contingent uh, uh, convergence. And as Peter Hall uh, said in a recent article, the EMU may have been a mistake. Um, it's a political construction and must therefore be recreated also uh, uh, politically. And to frame the problem as the European social model is lo as long gone only accelerates its demise, uh, including uh, uh, EMU. And, you know, from a social investment perspective, I think there's a political uh, bonus because, I mean, here you can really have a conception of a caring, capacitating, and at the same time competitive uh, 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 Europe 2020 uh, uh, economy flexible enough to relaunch this process that was on the way before the crisis uh, of contingent uh, convergence. So coming back to this issue of policy drift or recalibration, clearly policy drift has before the crisis not been the only show uh, in town. As a matter of fact, if you calculate the pension reform being implemented in the 1980s and 1990s, and you sort of, you know, you, you accumulate the savings made, already uh, uh, the pension bill is a quarter less than it would have been if there hadn't been uh, these, uh, these pension reforms. There's a, a major uh, uh, innovation in, in new social risk and capacitating social services for families uh, and children. So then the question, why so much welfare recalibration? And my sort of simple answer to this, because you know, as political scientists, we tend to look at cleavages uh, a lot. So you know, who's in favor of you know, different policies over the life course? You know, which kind of political class or, uh, or economic class would vouch uh, for this? And I think what is driving, what has been driving this is converging family aspirations, founded in this sort of deep social contract uh, legacy uh, basically, you know, decent work for everyone and dual earner capacitating uh, care provision in reciprocity rights uh, uh, um, uh, and obligations. Now, I'll, I'll let you read this, but 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 what, else? <laughs> um, but I want to, what I want to show. I mean, how, uh, am I over time yet? Yeah, you are slightly. <laughs> slightly. I have two. This one. Uh, and then uh, another one, but that the one next one is very short. So what I find really interesting, and I, I'll do this quickly, uh, is that the social austerity reflex was very dominant, sort of you know, you know post the Greek uh, 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 sovereign debt crisis. So again, you know, this is the policy problem, cost containment, engineer a risk shift because of the bubble cost disease, there's a crowding out effect, there's a trade-off, so therefore deregulate, privatize, etc., etc. The macro policy is pro-cyclical, balanced budget, you know, countries are on their own, they should be punished for their misbehavior. The theory of the state is, you know, a negative one, watch out for distributive coalitions and the political discourse, the European social model. Now, what I've tried to show uh, is that, I mean, this is a bit optimistic, I guess, but we've, we've moved a little bit 
in another direction uh, uh, with the social investment uh, package and also the new macroeconomic policies that have been put into place. So now there's a concern with long-term revenue raising. Therefore, there's a need to maximize employment. Uh, social investment, there's a lot of proof, crowd in private economic initiative. The devil is in the detail. It's the way you combine stocks, flows, and buffers. And economic stabilization is much more than fighting inflation and balanced budget. So sailing counter-cyclically against the wind with a strong focus on inclusive growth. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and, you know, institutions are sometimes bad constraints, but also resources, and particularly capacitating social services and the way they are being implemented is very important to, 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 to mitigate the BOMOL costasies. And again, the political discourse is a capacitating, caring, and competitive social market economy, as it is signaled in the uh, treaty. So now, the political predicament. Have the European elections uh, scared the political centre strong enough to get their act together on social investment and demand friendly EU 3.0 and help them cross the Rubicon towards a political optimal political <coughs> union of active welfare states? I think we can be... There's a lot of worries uh, about that, for which, of course, a grand coalition uh, um, uh, uh, commission and council is imperative. I think they're working on that. I do hope so. Uh, but then the question, if that happens, where does that leave uh, the UK? But that's for the discussion. Thank you. Have a seat. Um, we're going to go straight on to uh, David Soskis's uh, comments. Um, when I first came to LSE, professors of political science didn't talk to professors of economics. Now David is a uh, professor of both political science and economics. Uh, he's um, been research professor in Oxford, in uh, Duke University, and in uh, Berlin. Um, uh, so we welcome his reactions to lecture. Lovely. Thank you. Um, Anton, what a, what a, what a pleasure. Um, uh, in my view, Anton is one of the two or three leading, uh, leading academics who work on comparative welfare, welfare states. <coughs> His work is very highly cited. I put really deeply admire the way in which he can move between really detailed understanding of different aspects of the welfare state on the one hand and this big picture way in which he puts all that into a wide understanding of how the European political economy works. So I just want to say to start with we're extraordinarily lucky that you were persuaded to come and join the LSE uh, as a centennial professor and I really look forward to being able to work with you. So, fascinating, challenging, rich lecture uh, with your analysis of the fault lines of the current system. Let me try and pick up uh, 
some of the things which you've which you've said, which I was sort of really struck by as we went uh, as we went as we went um, along. Uh, I, 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 I agree with so much of what you of what you say. Uh, I'm uh, I find all the detailed analysis about how social investment worked investments work really compelling. Um, I, um, well, I was, I was going, I was going, I was going to, to was, was was going to talk about some of the continental things, but I, I what I really, um, I'm, I really found myself in, ending up by being fascinated by this issue of the emu on the one hand and the southern European hmm. economies on the other. Um, in part because um, Valtraud, Shekhar, was going to talk after me and I were having an argument about this yesterday. <laughs> Valtraud regards my views on this as cynical. I should just warn <laughs> you that you may come back and <laughs> say that I, I personally don't regard my views as cynical at all, by the way, but that's... Yeah. <laughs> so... I, I, I won't. I won't take. I won't take up very much time. So we've so we've got plenty of time to to talk. I, I think it's a really interesting question: Is EU going to to survive with this extraordinary divergence between uh, the northern European countries and um, and the southern European the southern European countries? First of all, it's becoming more and more clear how deeply committed. Germany is to EMU. How Germany and indeed the other Northern European countries see EMU as really central to their export strategies. These yep. are these yep. Northern European countries are driven by the need to have really successful export sectors. It used to be the case that when they were doing well, the French would devalue or the Italians would devalue or the Spanish would devalue. And the EMU system guarantees to northern European countries that these southern European countries and also France will stay in line. And that is tremendously helpful to German exports. So Germany wants to keep I think at some point it decided that a Brexit, a Greek exit from EMU was a fundamental danger point for EMU. It would be like letting layman's collapse. You wouldn't know what would happen if Greek Greece was to leave. If Greece was to leave, almost certainly Portugal and Spain would be hugely pressured. Possibly Italy. The whole pack of cards could collapse. So what has Germany done about that? And how is it that we're in the sort of what one might think of as a stalemate that we're, that we're in, where somehow the southern European countries seem to be prepared to accept 
this suffering in terms of austerity. Germany seems to be prepared not to push, put so much pressure on the southern European countries to fundamentally reform their institutions to get rid of protection and the, uh, and, and the like. Why is, why is that the case and can it, can it persist? Well, mm -hmm. I think one way of looking at it is that in the southern European countries, and I'm aware that I'm in the presence of various experts I can see in front of me on southern European countries, so I shall tread cautiously, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> um, <coughs> very substantial sectors of the southern European countries, uh, the professions, small enterprises, retail, retail sectors, uh, and so on, are very heavily protected. There is not, you know, there, there isn't powerful competition legislation. They do absolutely fine. <coughs> so how have the, these countries responded to the pressures from Germany and from Brussels uh, to either really change their institutions, reform their institutions, or really get rid of the current, the, their, their public sector deficits. They've responded by accepting austerity, and they've accepted austerity by letting austerity fall on the politically weakest sectors of these societies. So you have a lot of youth unemployment in these in these societies, but the conservative parts of the society, uh, these protected sectors, uh, these are people who actually really want to stay in the, in the EMU themselves because these are people with savings and so on. They don't want to see that they're pushed out of EMU and lose the value of their, their savings. There's been a sort of pragmatic, pragmatic solution where the southern European countries put the burden of adjustment on those who are politically weak. The established conservative sectors of these societies may suffer, of course, but they don't suffer all that much. And Germany and Brussels are aware that if you put more pressure on these countries than that, something may give. So my take is that a, it's going to be very difficult to reform these countries, uh, but B, this, they will stay within the, they will stay within the, we'll just simply carry on with this unsatisfactory type of situation. Well, mm -hmm. I'll stop, I'm really aware of the, so I'll stop at that point. Okay, thank you very much. You. Uh, can we go straight on to Valtraj Schelkel, who is Associate Professor of Political Economy here in the European Institute? Do you want to stay there? Or? Um, if it's okay, then I stay here. Um, I think Anton's work is always great because it is so uplifting amidst all this grumpiness about the EU and governments don't do the right thing or can't do the right thing and so on. Um, although I'm not quite sure the way you portrayed EMU today did much for less grumpiness about the EU, but never mind. Uh, he mentions in his paper that, uh, that both the EU and the welfare state, European integration and the welfare state, are great achievements of social engineering. 
and I think that is true. Uh, it is so much of the of what happens with Europe and what happens with the welfare state is just things we are born into. Administrations play a much bigger role perhaps than we sometimes give them in our research. And they are often consented less in a strictly democratic way because, you know, the programs evolve and evolve and it's never coming up if they work uh, in, in, in parliamentary debates. Both are great arenas of subterranean politics, as Jacob Hacker has said. So all this is great, and that somebody endorses social engineering in this sense, I think that sometimes this case has to be made. But as uplifting as all this is in Anton's work, um, there's also always the nagging question, why do governments not simply, simply implement what Anton says? <laughs> it seems to be so obvious, a no-brainer, right? Uh, equity and efficiency, caring, capacitating, and competitive. I mean, who cannot agree to that? It's motherhood and apple pie. Now, Anton says in his paper, they don't do it because they never try, or they do not try hard enough, and now they have to try under much more difficult circumstances. And he makes up a fault line between the EU and the welfare state. You know, these tectonic plates create tension, have a tension between them. There is the EU, the EMU, that is purely based on a perfect market model. It's all about economics and, and efficiency. And there are these deep national social contracts that characterize our welfare state, and there we want to be caring and all that. I think, Anton, I cannot quite buy into that story because you sound as if you have been the rebel outside all these years, the lone voice in the desert of economists' advice. But then all these years, I think you were the advisor inside. <laughs> you talked to governments in the Netherlands and Belgium, and you wrote for the Belgian presidency a book with Esping Anderson and others. So if your critique of the EU and of the lack of European social policy is convincing, then you yourself have a few serious questions to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Why do governments that are open to these ideas, and at least the centrist social democrats and the compassionate conservatives were, find it so hard to implement uh, this motherhood and apple pie kind of uh, agenda? And why is this competitiveness and cohesion paradigm? Because this is what the EU really pursues. It says not equity and efficiency. It says cohesion and competitiveness. But you tell me what the difference is. Uh, why is this co competitiveness and cohesion paradigm of integrating welfare states not more popular? To answer the questions why it is so hard, I think one needs a sense of paradoxes and unintended consequences. I give you just two examples. The measures to combat insider-outsider structures in labor markets, i.e. to lower employment protection and having these activation policies you talked about, have arguably increased dualization and insider-outsider structures in labor markets. Why that is? Yes, that can be because the insider block and you have to face in such policies, but that's what happens. Or take another example. Measures to promote gender equality, i.e. increase female employment, 
have arguably led to less equality for some women, namely those who take up the care work, underpaid and underprotected. Jane Lewis has said that long ago, and she, with her deep sense of history, has actually often been ahead of the curve compared to us political economists. We political economists have not been that good in preparing reform-minded governments for these paradoxes and unintended consequences that well-intentioned policies uh, may generate. But I find the really hard question is why the agenda of equity and efficiency or efficiency through equity is not more popular. And I'm very curious of your answer. Let me give you three quick thoughts on why that might be the case. The first is, I think, social engineering is, a, is risky politics. When it works, people become indifferent about politics and get on with their lives and are kind of content with it. When they don't like it, they turn around and say, what are you doing here? I've never consented to this because there is no such thing as a social contract about these things. People have never actively consented to the whole machinery that EMU means or to the welfare state as, as we found it and are born into it. And that this output legitimacy of social engineering is, is a fragile one. The second is the regulatory policies that the EU almost is confined to because it has no big budget. It's better at promoting some agendas than others. For example, it finds it easier to, to give individual rights to equality rather than collective entitlements that can support an equality agenda. And doing it differently would not come cheap. You would, for example, have to pay living wages in the public sector or create professional care, a career paths in the care sector. And all this would cost money that governments find they don't have. And it's not even popular with voters that become increasingly fiscally conservative and more conservative the younger they are. That's my experience from teaching. <laughs> my third uh, think, thought on this is, and it's a serious one in which I also include myself, the way we present our theories always projects that we are on the right side of weak history. And those who are against it, against the expansion of the truly universal, comprehensive welfare state, are protectionist, chauvinist, or xenophobic. But how does this sound to those who experience with open, associate uh, with open borders more pressure on housing and schools, upward pressure on prices and downward pressure on wages. The gains from efficiency through equity in open economies do not accrue equally, and even the comprehensive, supposedly universal Nordic welfare states have not yet found out how to address poverty migration that can only rise over the following of the future decades, thanks to European integration, but also climate change and other things. So these are just some of my self-critical <laughs> questions, and I'm sure you have better answers to all of this, Anton, because you always have. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Could we take a number of uh, questions, and, and, and um, uh, if, if they could please be questions rather than uh, long statements, uh, and uh, then um, in the, we'll give... Uh, a right of reply uh, at the end of that. But uh, any comment, sir? 
Thank you. Uh, like the other panellists, I'm uh, a big fan of your work and equally a fan of the political prescriptions, uh, but also nervous about whether they will work and uh, proper implementation. What strikes me, I think, is that in terms of your contrast between uh, the domestic politics of why reform hasn't happened previously and your solution in terms of uh, an external, liberalizing, socially sensitive uh, program. And I think in terms of the content and the mechanism of intervention, as David was suggesting before in the Greek case, to leave a reform domestically, you would be uh, having a content of uh, liberalization challenging uh, some of the most protected sectors of the society, yeah. which have been uh, precisely the, the barriers to reform. Yeah. So I wonder in terms of uh, the legitimacy of your solution in a context in which uh, many are challenging the imposition of the troika uh, and the bailouts, etc., and why you think this would, um, as it were, unblock <coughs> deeply established rigidities and uh, blockages to reform in societies where the constituency for liberalization has historically been highly constrained. Okay, thank you. Uh, Bernie. Yeah, I come here just recovering from having put in an Horizon 2020 proposal which is actually looking at social investment. Um, and I opened that proposal with the suggestion that social investment was um, new wine in, or old, no, old wine in new bottles. Um, those of us who are old enough remember something called social protection as a productive factor, um, which had its demise, I think, by about the late 1990s and is now being, as they say, resuscitated in a new, uh, in a new guise. But, I mean, the notion of productive factor and investment, I think, are, are, are important. What I am concerned with is what actually are the metrics of social investment that we can actually use to show uh, that um, it is a productive factor, that it is something. For many years, I have been working as an economist talking about social policy uh, trying to engage social policy makers with uh, fiscal policy makers and trying to get some kind of common language between the two of them. And the problem has always been that at one level you're talking about sort of hard facts about euros, dollars or whatever. On the other hand, you're posing against these sort of soft outcomes. Quantifying those soft outcomes is the real problem. I have been working with, pe we, uh, sorry, with people on social returns on investment, and I wonder whether you can comment upon social returns on investment as a methodology which might actually enable one to generate metrics which actually produces an argument which will work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Don't worry, Anton, I'm not going to ask you about regimes. Uh, buried deep in your lecture was, I think, a fundamental point that's been neglected in much of the Euro debate, and that is when you said that the reform pressure evaporated in southern European countries. 
There's actually a very easy explanation for that, which is the windfall gain of low interest rates. Yeah. Took five, six percentage points off yeah. the, the cost yeah. of financing exactly. the, the high public debts. Yeah. That's now reversed. Yeah. And what we're now seeing, yeah. arguably, is the original conception of EMU, which was that it would put pressure on supply-side reform, having been postponed, now coming back with a vengeance. I want to, first of you want to comment yeah. on that. Yeah. Also, in your lecture, you barely mentioned Central and Eastern Europe, which are parts of the EU that went through massive transition, indeed, before joining the EU. And I wonder whether you have any lessons that come out from that experience that we really ought to, to draw on. I'll stop there. Okay. I'm just going to take one or possibly two more questions and ask you to address them all because <laughs> the time is short. Yes, mine's rather quicker. Um, the lady mentioned the, the question of unintended consequences in terms of risks, stability, and growth. Does the speaker believe that there is, is there really a way out for EMU, or is this the end game, or a way out of this deadlock in terms of the crisis and its aftershocks? Okay. Um, Timo, one final question. Um, you explained to us why um, um, every good social democrat should believe, progressive person should believe in social investment. But as an economist, what makes you believe that social investment actually um, translates into greater productivity? That's kind of this idea of a supply push um, works and rapidly employers will pick up these new skills and will be more productive. The UK invested during new labor a lot into um, skills. Every year they increased by 7.7%, a lot of money, especially geared at intermediate skills. But um, employers were not terribly excited and there were very little increases in productivity. How would it work if everybody across Europe engaged in such a strategy? Okay, you've got one minute per question. <laughs> okay. Um, let me begin with, with, with something uh, that uh, Waltraud um, started off with. Is, is this sort of like this social engineering uh, thing? And I, I mean, you know, I'm trained as an economist and I have my dissertation, uh, my PhD in political science, but, you know, I was mostly taught by sociologists. I think social engineering is a human condition. And, and, and that applies to the banking sector as much as we know uh, as to the, to the public sector. There's a, there's a difference here, and that also is very fundamental when it comes to investment. If you, if you ask uh, employers, um, uh, you know, why are you investing in this, that, or the other, they have not a clear sort of, you know, calculation why, you know, there is a huge rate of return. They have a hunch that that would work. They are far more empirically oriented, uh, looking at markets, and, 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 and then they go for it. Now, of course, with the public accountability structures that we have, we, we cannot take risks as countries, as, as, as polities, and there are all kinds of interests involved that, that would not allow us to do. But if we could become a little bit more you know, institutionally aware and also looking at, you know, a number of, of the numbers that I've shown, which basically point all to the, the direction that actually there is a rate of return uh, uh, to social investment. 
maybe we cannot calculate it in terms of productivity, but we, we, we definitely can, can show employment increases. Uh, uh, and, and, and given the fact that people want jobs, uh, uh, you know, and also want the jobs, uh, because you know, when you think about the welfare state, it's basically paid by those who, uh, who work. It's, it's, a, it's a tax uh, uh, system, and it, very little corporate taxation that goes into the welfare state. So that's also a way to, uh, to afford it. And I think here, there's a lot of proof, but it's not the kind of, you know, you know, axiomatic proof that you would really want to have. Uh, but then, you know, the public sector cannot take uh, those risks. But the human condition is, is, is really uh, uh, social engineering. Now, some of your deeper points are uh, about, you know, where is the political, you know, if it was so easy, why, why don't uh, uh, we do it? And I think here and it relates to some of the questions being asked here as well, is that we've had a policy theory, a policy paradigm, that was probably right, uh, uh, that came out of the stagflation crisis uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And that policy theory has been with us for 30, 40 years. We're now sort of debating it again, you know, whether that's the right way to look at uh, the world. But it's so deeply ingrained in institutions, um, you know, at uh, uh, um, the level of, you know, everybody who works in central banks and in, in, in ACFIN, at fin finance ministries around the world. So you, you really need some... Uh, uh, um, you need to put a lot of effort into that if you want to want to change that. I mean, I was in a position uh, to do that for a very long time, and uh, you know, they all think. That, I mean, the the reports that we made, if if one out of ten did something in terms of public policy, that was that's a huge success. That's really great, um, and some did, and many don't do not. Uh, uh, um, so then. I think the sort of the fundamental question of why 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 is it so difficult uh, to do this uh, in, in 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 countries who are not 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 that they're not institutionally equipped to do so, but also in terms of the levels of development, they're not yet there um, uh, uh, in a way. And I think here, Spain, I find really interesting because you know in Spain push uh, 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 through liberalization uh, uh, with women entering the labor market, with women then demanding at the regional level, uh, you know, daycare uh, and these flow kinds uh, uh, of policies. I mean, there you see policy change that doesn't begin with a political constituency but ends with a political constituency. And so, so now there is this reversal indeed, and the question, uh, and the answer is no, is do women go back uh, to, to become housewife? Well, the answer is no. So, so there has to be some kind of give and take there, and I think that's, that's what, what makes uh, uh, Spain uh, interesting. I mean, Gre three minutes, sorry. Yeah, so Greece is, I think, is really problematic in, in, in this, this respect, and, and from an institutional point of view, if you would not just do uh, a spreadsheet of a country and then allow them in or out of EMU, I think it would, would have been better for EMU, it would have been better for Greece not to have uh, entered EMU. Italy, for me, is the, the big surprise uh, that sort of, that, that there is, you know, the Prodis, of course the Berlusconis, and no interest whatsoever in social investment. But what is important in, you know, if, 
EMU is going to stay is that there needs to be, in the long run, there needs to be ownership of, of a reform agenda. So let's say if Renzi, who is very keen on, on having uh, reforms, but he's also very, very adamant about you know, giving some breathing space to do the reforms, if here he can be helped with some good ideas on reform, and he can be helped with a breathing space, I think that Portugal, Spain, uh, and, and Italy can sort of uh, uh, stay uh, in EMU and, 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 and develop uh, uh, um, not per se social investment, Scandinavian uh, welfare, welfare state, but something along the lines that was in the making in, uh, um, uh, in, 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 in Spain. Um, and this also, uh, I think, uh, answers to the, to the comments uh, uh, of, uh, of, of, of David. I think one thing, Waltraud, is that um, in my book, Changing Welfare States, uh, I mean, you, 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 uh, you present as if it's sort of like an utopia, and then you say, why aren't we doing this? I mean, my own surprise is that this is, being, this is in the making. This is being done also in Germany. I think one of the most important political changes uh, that are relevant for, 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 for active welfare states is the fact that Christian democracy gave up uh, uh, on the idea of the mill breadwinner. I mean, there are all kind of vested interests, you know, insiders, etc., more with the trade unions and employers than with political parties. But giving up on housewives and, and thinking about, you know, the need for couples to have children and therefore to have women into the labor market is, I think, the most fundamental change that, that went on, which will, I mean, not inevitably, because it needs a lot of political mobilization, but will, which will push towards a social investment perspective. The problem, and that's where I, 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 I finish, if we allow, because, I mean, what Ian said, there's a reversal from low interest rates to high interest rates on high debt, that if the only way out for, uh, for, the, for the, the peripheral countries is pure retrenchment of the old school, if the, 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 the core economies are allowed to develop social investment, and they will, then that leads to even more divergence uh, than we have today. And from my perspective, I think that is both economically, uh, because it, you know, it would lead to economic divergence, but also politically, that is unsustainable. So if Europe will adopt the social investment perspective, something needs to be done to try to tag uh, uh, Italy, Spain, and, and Portugal along. I mean, Greece is a different case, but you know, it's a small case as well. I'm sorry we've got yeah. to stop there, but, yeah. but we can continue uh, in the fifth floor of the old building, the main building across uh, uh, in, in the staff dining room where there will be drinks and uh, a little to eat. Um, but it, it only remains for me to, to, to thank you all for coming, our commentators, and uh, to thank Anton for showing uh, the optimism that uh, launched the uh, whole European project and for be, being willing to uh, advocate sailing against the wind. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>